we forget that work and fun can go together. And the only time the neurons in our brain even fire is when there's emotion evoked in what we're doing. Well, if at work there's no emotion involved, then you're not serving your best self. So for me, the fun is is my authentic self, right? You have to be your authentic self. If, if it's too much for you, I totally get it. But at the same time, if you're constantly trying to be somebody you're not, you're exhausted and you can't be your best self. Why is it so important that we be our authentic selves? Because we don't truly know how to be anybody else. And so we're spending so much brain power trying to be that other person that we're too tired to be our best at anything. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Flow Over Fear podcast, where it is our mission to help you to rise above fear and realize your ultimate potential in leadership and life. I'm your host, Adam Hill, and it is my goal to share with you the human side of high performance. My guests share their experience with fear, anxiety, struggle, challenge, and most importantly, despite all of it, how they rose above it to achieve incredible results. So if you're ready to rise up, let's get started. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Flow Over Fear. I'm very, very grateful that you're joining us today because we're going to have a great conversation on learning. And, I'm, and, we, and, I, and my guest today, Dr. Christy McMullen, is an expert, and uh, she's a best-selling author of Learning Can Stick, a guide to make every interaction safe, logical, fun, and memorable. She's a 24-year educator turned entrepreneur who can help you make work fun. And who doesn't want that, right? She has worked with thousands of adults in multiple industries at organizations like Remax, Solaris, and Rise to improve human interactions. With a master's and doctorate in educational leadership and two and a half decades of practical experience, she is able to connect with CEOs, directors, educators, salespeople, anyone in between. And as a coach, networking specialist, and keynote speaker, she can help any human overcome mediocrity to experience extraordinary interactions with others. She can help you aim, analyze your current interactions, improve on those interactions, and move toward extraordinary relationships. Thank you so much for joining me here, Christy. I'm so glad you're here. Adam, I'm honored. This is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and you know, w- one thing that, that, you know, I just kind of want to start. I, I love getting into origin stories and finding out like why you got into what you got into and, and how you got in there. But before you do, in your bio, you mentioned that nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be terrible at my job today. And I, I definitely think that's true. And, but, you know, and quite frequently because they, don't have uh, the right tools in their tool belt to be extraordinary. And I kind of wanted to start with that because I wanted to get your take on what the right tools are and how we can start to get that, how we can start to get those tools in our toolbox. Absolutely. So um, I believe that if you make work fun, people don't quit, right? But the reason that things are fun is that your talents are being utilized, that somebody recognizes you for who you are, you are valued, you're appreciated. And you can't do any of that if you yourself don't know what you're good at and your employer or your team doesn't also know what you're good at. And so, you know, your question was really around um, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> How do you make work fun? And um, <laughs> right. I think 
The fun part comes in um, just being able to do your job well. I don't think that people are often equipped to do their jobs well. I think instead what happens is we assume because you have a certain job title that you're good at X, Y, and Z. And that's just not true. Um, We all have our talents. We all have our personalities. And often those two things don't match our job description. And we have really great people pushing papers that should be on the phone. And we've got others who are supposed to be on camera all day long and they would much, much rather turn it off. So we have to get good at letting people be good at what they're good at. And if they're not, we have to train them to be better. That's great. Yeah. So, and it sounds so simple to, to in, in theory. And, and I think, you know, Oregon, I, I, I've talked to a number of people too about, you know, fear, obviously as individuals, we experience fear, but I think organizations too experience fear mm-hmm. and it kind of revolves around the individuals in there and the uncertainty they face, or maybe the misalignment. Uh, would, is it safe to say that that the fear that people are experiencing are, are related to that lack of alignment they have and the lack of fun and that sort of thing? Definitely. And it's also the the age old adage of this is the way we've always done it. Right. We get stuck mm, yeah. in, um, you know, this is what this person does and this is what this job does. And this is the way we've always done it. Therefore, it must be the best way. And my my experience has said that there's probably a much better way if we get out of our own way <laughs> and let something happen. So I think in yeah. most businesses, we assume that we're doing it the best possible way it can be done. And we're probably not, but it's not because people want to be bad. It's just because right. they've never been exposed to doing it differently. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so we, we, we just have to kind of be open-minded to change and ultimately mm-hmm. what, you know, how, how our team members are fitting in the right seats, the right, the right roles and, and doing what they love and doing what they're good at. Right. Right. Exactly. And, so. and not making assumptions that people just automatically know how to do things because you showed them once or because they went to school for a particular thing. That's not how you learn. You learn by doing. Yeah. And believe it or not, you have to do something. You have to do something 18 times in front of others to master it. But we often say, all right, I showed you how to do it on Tuesday. You have to do it by yourself on Wednesday. Best of luck. And it doesn't work like that. Our brains don't work like that. We have to practice. That's interesting. So you have to do things 18 times in front of somebody else in order to master it. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. Okay. So, but we often say, okay, you know, that's it. Go ahead. (laughs) Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, please. No, you're on. Go. Well, I, I'm, I, what I was going to say is about your learning zone and your performance zone. So what tends to happen to us as human beings is we spend about 90% of our time in the, in the performance zone where mm-hmm. the stakes are really high and we have to get it right. Uh, the problem with that is you don't actually improve at all when you're in the performance zone. You just do it the way your muscle memory says to do it. The learning zone, however, is the space where you can actually get better at something. So I'll use an example that's personal. I can't type the phrase, let me know, without screwing it up. I am a fairly decent typist who probably can type 70 words a minute, 80 words a minute, I don't know, and do pretty well at it. But the phrase, let me know, I can't, even though I probably type it six times a day. But every time I type it, I'm doing it in an email and I have to get it right. If I were to take five minutes and just type the phrase over and over and over again, that would be a learning zone experience and I'd get better at it. Have I done it? No. 
Do I need to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No, that's a great example. And and so, and, and that's really interesting how, yeah, we, we spend 90% of our time in the performance zone. We don't learn in that zone. We just kind of do. Uh, how do we, how do we shift that? Is there a way we could shift that into being, spending more time in the learning zone or spending the right amount of time in the learning zone? Yes, um, but it requires thought. So like I'll, I'll use a business example. If you are a boss and you are in charge of a team, um, but every single time you ask your team to do something, it's in front of a client and you don't ever give the space to role play with somebody else about a new sales technique or how to use Salesforce as an example. You know, whatever it is you're trying to teach your people to do, if the only time they've ever had a chance to do it is when it's high stakes, right? Money involved. Uh, this is an actual merge we have to get this right, that's performance zone work. And that's right. fear evoking and just flat out scary. But the but the learning zone is, all right, guys, we've got this new technique we're going to try with this with the sales team. Let's do it with each other for an hour and see how it goes. We'll switch partners a couple times. And when we're done, let's see how much better we feel. That Those 18 times you have to practice, now you've done it five, right? And you do that a couple times and all of a sudden you're going to be really, really good at it instead of, all right, I showed you, now go do it yourself. Okay. So that's, that's, it. that's so, so spending some time in a sandbox, so to speak, just like, you know, hanging mm-hmm. out, exactly. doing some practice that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, um, but, and yeah, and yeah, I'd like to take a little step back and, and talk about you for a moment and kind of learn a little bit about how you got into this work. Cause I'd, I'd love to hear about, you know, your background, what inspired you to get into this kind of work, how you, how you came up into it. <laughs> well, maybe by default and design, is that an option? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I I grew up knowing that I wanted to teach. I had a chalkboard in my room and, and at five years old and lined up my dolls and said, you know, all right, guys, we're going to learn something today. I didn't know, however, that my teaching career would go in the direction it went. So I started out teaching high school and within about six or seven years, I actually was was taken out of the classroom by choice um, to teach adults. I started mm. teaching teachers how to teach. Mm. That's the thing. <laughs> and so in teaching educators how to teach, what I realized is that I actually really enjoy adults. Uh, they're they're not big kids, but they kind of are. They're just adults who have developed their habits over a lot more years than the high schoolers had. And so you have to figure out how to reach them. And what motivates an adult learner is very different from a student. Um, An adult learner wants to know why and they want to know what's in it for me, right? How is this relevant to what I do every day? So I spent a lot of time in that space making sure that I knew why I was doing something and I could communicate that with whoever I was teaching. And most of that space, 17 years, uh, I've been teaching adults, mostly educators. And then I went, wait a minute. I don't care what industry you're in, you're teaching people things all day long, right? If you're having a conversation with your spouse, you're teaching him or her something. If you have a conversation with a coworker, you're teaching them something. And so I realized that what I had been doing for all these years was actually repeatable and worked in any relationship. So even though I still work in the education space, I am now shifting over into the business space. And I've worked with real estate agents and mortgage brokers and healthcare workers and nurses. And in every one of those instances, safe, logical, fun, and memorable, which we can talk about in a little bit, works. And so I realized that 
although every one of us is teaching people things all day long, you were never taught how to make that stick. Mm -hmm. So that's what I do now is I help people get their point across in a way that will be sticky. Nice. And so what is, and and so by sticky, you mean, mean that just kind of stays with them, that stays internal. Is that, is that how that means? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. So, you know, you don't tell somebody something and then hope they forget it four minutes later. You tell somebody something in the hopes that it's that it sticks, that it's something that they continue to remember. You want to be memorable. But that doesn't just happen. So uh, we've all sat in a meeting where we thought, oh, my sweet Lord, first of all, this could have been an email. And secondly, (laughs) I can never get that hour of my life back. Right. Right. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. There is a way to deliver information that the person doing the talking is the person doing the learning. So if I'm doing all the talking in a meeting, I'm also doing all of the learning. I just walked away knowing more about what I walked in knowing and nobody else in the room knows a thing. Yeah. And that's not our point, but it's what tends to happen in most instances. And I can fix that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's fascinating. And you, and you have a lot of experience in that, in that role, being an educator, going from that high school teacher to teaching teachers to teaching business people and, and, and that sort of thing. That's a, I mean, there's a lot of transition there. And I imagine fear played a pretty significant role in a lot of those transitions, right? <laughs> yeah. So how, yes, it did. Yeah. It still does. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that look? How does that lay out? It's, it's interesting, for sure. So when I was teaching high school, I was asked to start this new program called AVID. AVID is an amazing organization that helps educators get better at what they do so that students have options when they graduate, right? So I'm teaching these kids for the first time in their lives that they can go to college, that they have a future, that they've got all the possibility in the world. And then they came to me because I taught it for a year. And then 11 more schools came on board. So I became the resident expert with one year of experience. And they said, hey, we want to pull you out of the classroom and let you teach teachers. That scared me to death. I never wanted to leave the classroom. However, I realized I was telling my kids all day, every day, you've got to push yourself. You've got to try new things. You've got to do something that scares you. So I had to do it, too. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful that I did because then I spent the next six years learning what it took to help people get better at what they do. I learned how to guide groups. I learned how to coach principals. I learned how to do all kinds of things that I never would have learned had I stayed put. But I was scared to death every single day. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, I just learned to push past it. Yeah. Didn't know did in that first part, did you have to deal with a lot of discomfort at the beginning? I mean, obviously you're afraid to make the change, but did you pick it up fast or did was it a gradual process? There were parts of it I felt like I picked up really fast. There were also lessons that it took a while to learn, right? Um, I am a bold flavor. <laughs> um, that's that's a phrase my husband and I have used. I am I'm a lot. I'm a little extra, right? It's it's part of my personality. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, but I am oh, an yeah. Enneagram 7, which is the enthusiastic optimist, right? And I know I'm a lot. So I would come into these schools and I'm like, you need to fix it all. And you need to. And then these principals are like, get out. (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Like, we're fine. And so I had to realize, okay, wait, first of all, everybody doesn't do it the way I would. And so I had to overcome that fear of failure and that um, I thought I was supposed to be the expert, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And I had to be okay with the idea that maybe they're not all going to like me. And maybe they're not all going to think that what I have has value. But what ended up happening over the years is I became the person they came to, even though I didn't hold the title 
that they should have come to, right? I was I was technically what they call a teacher on special assignment, which meant that I, you know, was still um, at the teacher level, but here I was coaching administrators. And so I had to be confident enough in what I knew to overcome a title shift. And once I did that, then they, they respected me enough to say, okay, but I had to fail forward. I had to try it and try it again and tweak it a little bit. Um, and so I, I think I would say something I've learned about myself is that I have a bias towards action. Um, I'm willing to try. I'm probably going to fall on my face, but uh, the fear of failure doesn't stop me from trying. It makes me nervous in the process, but I'll still try. That's that's no, that's a great, great insight because and the idea of failing forward and the bias towards action, because we, you know, I, I think we we have this natural tendency to fail and then think it's a it's that, that we're we're done, that that's the end. But if we can actually learn from that and I mean, keep going, um, it, it's it's a great, great way of looking at it. And I love that you mentioned the Enneagram, too, because I, I, I was finally introduced that to that about a year ago, found out that I'm an Enneagram one. So I'm supposed to lean into the seven, which is, which is, a, I guess this is a good dynamic yeah. then. So <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> my daughter's a one and uh, the perfectionist voices in your head are constantly um, telling you, no, no. And you got to learn to listen to the right one. Right. Oh yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still, it still <laughs> happens. I'm just like, yeah, I know. Gosh, I gotta be, I can't, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. <laughs> so nope. no, this is uh, um, yeah. And that's, and so that, that, that fear kind of sounds like it built some resiliency in you once you acknowledge or once you recognized what what that was, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. And it happened again. So, uh, I, you know, I left the classroom. I was working in the district office and I never had any desire to get my master's because you don't have to have that, you know, in the teaching yeah. field. But you can't be an administrator without it. And this gentleman, I don't know his name. I don't know where he worked. I don't know anything about him. But we were having a conversation at a training one day, and I had trained him and his entire staff. And we're having this conversation. He goes, well, where'd you get your master's? And I said, I don't have it. And he looked at me with this look, and he said, why not? And I was like, dang you. No, why not? And so I decided, uh uh-uh, no, nobody's going to be able to look at me and say something like that again. And so I got my master's. It's probably why I also have my doctorate because I just realized I don't want anybody to be able to slam a door in my face because I was afraid of something. And so that was another one of those imposter syndrome slash, oh my gosh, what am I doing moments in my life where I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And yet, as soon as I did, I realized, okay, yeah, I can. And that was another that was another bias towards action moment where I thought, I'm not sure why I'm here, but I'm going to do the best I can while I am, so that I can do some yeah. cool stuff. Now, would would you, would you recommend that, uh, or, or do you do you have a a a a, uh, a a belief that that everybody should adopt something of a bias towards action, or do you believe that there's some fault in that, or what do you think? Well, you can totally screw things up. So the other thing my my sweet husband says to me sometimes is, I, I, I'm going to solve the problem whether I have a good solution or not, right? So I will often, if something's on fire, grab what is at whatever is closest to me and throw it on the fire, even if it's gasoline, right? right? So the idea is that bias towards action can get you in trouble if you are not thoughtful with why you're acting. Yeah. And I think what I've learned, the older I get, the, the better I am at recognizing, oh, okay, I need to take a breath or I need to slow down. Like my current boss, I adore, 
because she is so different from me and she has taught me so many things. She's had 45 years in education and she's just brilliant. But what she's taught me is, Christy, you don't have to do it right this second. Mm -hmm. Take a breath. It's okay to not send off that email. It's okay to, to wait until morning. Just take a minute. And I think the bias towards action is great as long as you aren't always shooting from the hip. Gotcha. Right. To use all that, all the analogies at once. Why not? Why, yeah, why not just throw them all out there. <laughs> but sure. But the idea is that if you have a bias towards action, you're doing something. Right. But that doesn't always mean it's the right thing. So seek counsel, um, you know, take a minute. Just don't let fear stop you from doing something. Because I think that the flip side of it is, well, I'd better not do that because that might be bad. Well, great, but it might be really good. Yeah. So give it a shot. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think and, and yeah, part of the reason I wanted to dig in on that a little bit is because in this show, you know, I, I, I think a lot of fear comes from inaction. I mean, we, we're, we're inactive yes. because of fear. And I, you know, want to encourage people to take those actions, but the idea, I love that how you were able to kind of articulate that it's really thoughtful action, thoughtful, you know, thoughtful bias towards action that helps us to really discern what's right. And, and that's an yeah. important, important concept. So you, so then you took the step from, you know, teaching teachers to, to teaching, to getting into businesses and starting that, the, the teaching there and really helping uh, businesses to thrive. How was that process? And did you learn a lot there? <laughs> Scary. Sure. Scary as hell. Yeah. Um, okay. So I am definitely not your traditional trainer. Like, so everybody's experienced a teacher or a trainer, right? right? I give scratch and sniff stickers to adults. I, love I it. make them do ridiculous claps, right? Like we do a, a thing where you put your fingers up like this and you say, you are out of this world, right? Like, <laughs> who does that? It's ridiculous. And yet, I own it because it's who I am, right? It's my authentic self, and I know that. So when I first shifted and I did my first presentation, it was in front of a room full of mortgage brokers, and it just so happened to be a group of people that my husband worked with closely. They knew of me. They did not know me, but they took a chance on me, bought everybody one of my books, and I got my first opportunity to present to a non-educational group. And at first, I thought, mm, I better hold back right? Like I better not do the stickers and the name thing and the claps and the, and I couldn't help myself. Yeah. And by the end, not only were these grown people fighting over the stickers and wanting to get as many as possible, but they were giving them to each other and they were, they continued it throughout the rest of the conference. And they still two years later talk about that. And I went, oh, this does work. Right. So I, I was doing a conference um, in Las Vegas just a couple weeks ago, and it was all healthcare workers and they're in Medicare, specifically sales and marketing for Medicare. And I probably gave out 600 stickers at this at this training. Right. right. And, and everybody had a scratch and sniff. I told them what what flavor do you want? Whatever. And this woman towards the end, I asked in, in the keynote presentation, I was like, so what's something that you're walking away with? And she said, you handed me a sticker the other day and I was so oddly excited by that sticker that I am literally going to give my team stickers from now. And I'm like, do what? Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's owning who you are and making that your superpower that pushes you past fear and lets you say, all right, this can work. So your question was really, did that happen to you again when you shifted from educators to, to people that are not in education? And the answer is heck yes. But 
I recognized when I was in front of them that it's okay to be me because that's the only person I know how to be. And once I embraced that, we were okay. I love that. So yeah, you. So I want to kind of, I want to kind of put a pin in that and, and talk on that a little bit. The owning who you are as a as a way to really push past fear. Hey everyone, if you're listening to this show and you want to rise above fear and achieve greater flow in your life which of course translates into better results in business, better health, a more fulfilling lifestyle, and much, much more. And who doesn't, right? Well, then schedule your free strategy call with me today. Simply go to www.adamcliffordhill.com coaching and click on the link to start your journey to your high flow life. Can we dig into that a little bit? Why, why, that, why that is? What, what is it about authenticity that helps us to push past fear? Well, I think we spend a lot of time in life wearing a mask Mm -hmm. and pretending that we're somebody we're not, right? I don't really belong in this meeting, so I better sound really serious or I better dress a certain way or I can't wear my loud tennis shoes. Like I, I need to be something. I need to fit in a box. And unfortunately, what that does is that keeps you from being comfortable at all. And so you can't communicate what you need to communicate. You can't give your best ideas because your whole energy is being spent trying to be something that you're not. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be personal and professional ways of work or, or, you know, spaces, but, but my whole thought behind make work fun is that I think we forget that work and fun can go together. And the only time the neurons in our brain even fire is when there's emotion evoked in what we're doing. Well, if at work there's no emotion involved, then you're not you're not serving your best self. So for me, the fun is is my authentic self, right? Right. You have to be your authentic self. If if it's too much for you, I totally get it. But at the same time, if you're constantly trying to be somebody you're not, you're exhausted and you can't be your best self. So we have to, one, in a workplace, allow people to be their, themselves, right? Like I have coworkers that I know I exhaust them and we talk about it. <laughs> like I know I'm making you tired. I'll, I'll give you a minute. It's okay. But if I don't own that too and say it's okay for you to not be wide open, then that's, that's shame on me. So I think all the way back to your question, why is it so important that we be our authentic selves? Because we don't truly know how to be anybody else. Mm. And so we're spending so much brain power trying to be that other person that we're too tired to be our best at anything. That's a great, great point. Um, yeah. Cause I, I know that there's, that there's times in business and, and even myself kind of internalizing this, taking it to, the business that that I run, if 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 I'm trying to be, you know, too too businessy or not not, uh, yeah, it, it's exhausting. It it gets exhausting. It is. So you make a very very good point there, and and um, and and I love the idea of bringing fun into the workplace, and and that that's a focus. So can you kind of share about that because you talked about making it safe, logical, fun, and and memorable. Um, so I want to kind of get into some definitions there too. But what what do we mean by safe? So safe is not that you're not going to trip over a cord. Safe, safe is psychological safety. Safe is, you know who I am and I know who you are. Um, I'm able to be my authentic self in this space. I can ask questions. I can make mistakes. I can admit those mistakes. 
it is okay for me to not know, right? So psychological safety can be created super quickly. Um, that's really where the stickers started, right? Mm-hmm. So when, I, when I'm getting ready to meet 600 new people, I'm going to introduce myself and give you a sticker so that I can grab your name tag and read your name a couple times and say it to you so that I know your name is Adam. And you don't have to know my name. That's okay. But I just made it safer for you to be in my space and learn. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's safe. Safe is is that psychological safety that I know it's okay for me. Because remember, adults want to know why and they want to know what's in it for them. So the why am I here and what's in it for me is created when you make it safe for learning to happen. Okay. So that's safe. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, that's powerful. It kind of brings it back around too to the, uh, to the authentic self, you know, that making sure that we're giving the space for somebody to be authentic. Sounds like that's the theme yeah. in that, in that, in that instance. Most definitely. Yeah. Right. So it's okay for somebody to say to me, I don't want a sticker. Okay. Right. You don't have to take a sticker. That's fine. Um, and just a funny aside. I did this with a, with a, it was a healthcare group and, um, a CEO, came in and you could tell he was a CEO by the way he carried himself. Right. And so he walks in and he says to me, um, or I said, hello, you know, I'm, I'm Christy. What flavor would you like? Strawberry or peppermint or chocolate? And he goes, they smell. And I said, yes. And he said, I don't want one. And I'm like, okay, totally fine. So he goes and sits down. I, I am in the middle of my presentation and I'm giving out stickers. And I said, we've switched to orange scented stickers now. And I'm giving orange scented stickers. And this gentleman, kid you not, chased me down in the lobby after the session. And he said, Christy, you said something about an orange scented sticker. And I'm like, yeah. And he said, I want one of those. He didn't feel safe to take a sticker to begin with, but once he had spent some time with me and he knew I wasn't going to hurt him and nobody was going to be um, making fun of him for having a sticker on his name tag, he wanted one. Oh, right. Yeah. So safety can take a little time, but safety is the most important thing you can create with another human. That's important to know. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. Safety is the most important thing it can create with another human. I love that aspect. And then so kind of getting to the logical, fun, and memorable. What do those mm-hmm. elements play in, in there? Okay, so I'm going to go through all three, and you stop yeah. me when, when you have questions. So Please. the yeah. logical piece is that you have to have a plan, and you have mm-hmm. to stick to the plan, but you can't be the only person who knows the plan. So what often happens, and this is the most prime example I could give, is I need you in my office in an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well. As the employee, I'm in total panic mode for that hour. What does he want to talk to me about? I don't know. Oh, my gosh, did I screw something up? And I have spent all the anxiety and fear in that hour instead of, Christy, I need to see you in my office in an hour. We need to talk about that file that you've been working on because I'm meeting with that client this afternoon and I need to talk to them about it. I just need you to bring me up to speed. That is a wholly different conversation than I need you in my office in an hour. But we tend to be a little less logical, right? I know the plan. You don't need to know it. Why do you need to know? And then I feel left out. So, So the logical is about having a plan and sticking to the plan. And then it's also about making sure that people have a chance to process the information. Because if I am not processing as an adult learner, I'm not going to remember, I'm not going to be able to do anything with this information. And how often do we tell somebody something that we don't want them to do something with, right? right? We want people to do something with the information we're giving them, but we don't often give them a chance to process it. So that's logical. Mm-hmm. Is that logical? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely logical. <laughs> okay. 
Good, good. And then the fun, as I mentioned before, fun can be stickers. Um, you know, we, we live in the Zoom space now, right? So right. we're constantly on a virtual meeting with somebody. You can still have fun. You can kick off the meeting with a with a quick check-in of, how are you doing? Show me your pet. Um, you know, how oh, your kids are here. That's great. It's fun is evoking emotion. And the stickers are, are the quintessential emotion evoker for me. Um, but it's also laughter. It's an industry-specific joke. It's uh, an opportunity for people to connect and talk to each other in a, in a virtual or physical space. And we tend to blow right past that because we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Well, yes, and... If you want people to be involved in the work, you've got to evoke some emotion. So fun is is everything from using people's talents to making them laugh. Yeah, it's great. And then there's memorable. Okay, so memorable is fun, but let's talk about fun for just a second. Do you have questions on fun, Adam? No, fun, uh, fun, fun. I think we've 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 tackled it. I, I'll have some follow ups on all all of them, but I think that this is great okay. info because I think leaders who might be listening really need to hear this stuff. So. Like, yeah, please keep going. Well, and they need to, to do it, right? So, okay, yeah. so memorable to me is um, the one we forget to do. And memorable means that people walk away with something. And so I live in Florida, and here in the beautiful state of Florida, when it rains, it means it. So I live by the motto, sprinkle, splash, flood, drip, drip, drip. Okay, so sprinkle, splash, flood, drip, drip, drip is how we need to deliver information. So the sprinkle splash are the big fat drops that fall before the sky opens up. And you know that that means you need to take cover. But the sprinkle mm -hmm. splash is really like the preview to a movie or like the, um, well, it's the email before the meeting that says, here are the three things we're going to cover, right? It's the conversation that you have with somebody that says, I need you in my office in an hour to talk about this, this, and this. That's the sprinkle splash. The flood is the meeting, the training, the experience, the, hey, we're going to go buy a house and we're going to look at 14 of them today. The flood is all the information. But the problem with a flood, just like in Florida, is that most of that water is lost in runoff, mm -hmm. right? Right. But the drip, drip, drip is where you absorb that water. So the drip, drip, drip is what happens after the flood. There's a reason why there are three drips and not one. One isn't enough. So that's a follow-up email that says, hey, we talked about this in the meeting on Tuesday. I'm going to be in your office on Friday, and I would really like your um, take on what you learned. Or uh, we met last week, and I want to know what, what help you need, what support you need in, in implementing the thing that we talked about. The drip, drip, drip is what we tend to forget to do. And the problem with that as leaders is, well, I said it once. Yeah. And I was doing 14 other things that day. And you said it in passing without writing anything down. How in the heck am I supposed to remember that? So the drip, drip, drip is really the part that um, if we're intentional about, it can change every dynamic in your office because then you know that you're going to get it. That's a great communication tool. Um, and, and express like that, it's really helpful because, you know, I, I hear a lot of times that, you know, oh, nobody's communicating with us or nobody's communicating with our group or or nobody's or, or even as, as managers talking to their employees, nobody's listening to me. But if there's a simple framework for this where it's like, you know, multiple communications with the information flooding, that's that's super helpful. So I think that's a really great framework as far as how we can how we can you know, make the, make the alignment in our organizations better. Um, yeah. Now when, 
when things aren't going great within a company, like or or an environment, or maybe we're in a recession, maybe maybe there's difficult times. How is this approach the same? Is it different? How do we make that that process fun, even when it's not a fun environment? Maybe that's outside of our control. So. Although you need all four at all times, you don't need all four in a particular order. So in those situations where there's a recession, where something's going wrong, where you've made a major mistake, you need to have built the safe, logical, fun, and memorable previously, right? You can't wait until you're in a crisis and then be like, oh, well, now we're going to care about you as human. Um, That's probably not going to go as well as you might think. But it's never too late to start either. So, you you know, your question is about what do you do when, when things are going badly? You rely on the relationships that you've built when things were going well. If you don't have those, then you take the time to build the relationships first. I think the other thing in a, in a situation like that is to set aside assumptions. So often in business, the, the leader assumes that he or she is has all the answers and all of the information necessary to make the decision. The problem with that is that they're not typically the one executing the work. So if you don't ask the person that's actually doing the execution of work, what they think should happen to solve it, you're not going to get the right answer. And those people are going to end up very frustrated and the recession is going to get worse. So the other piece to that is for the leader to be okay setting aside assumptions and to just simply ask, that's fun for the employee. Mm -hmm. So it's not the kind of fun like we're going out to a party fun. It's my talents are being utilized. I'm being heard. I am contributing to the greater good. That's fun too. You know, fun isn't always strobe lights and you know, party music. Fun is is the idea that I'm bringing value. Yeah, that's that's no. I I appreciate that point because I know we're entering a time of, you know, some kind of economic uncertainty. There's there's people losing their jobs, and and I know that's creating a lot of fear in organizations. So they'll probably need to fear how how do I how to maintain you know that the the culture here and 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 get and keep it as as we want to. So um, and. Yeah. So that I, I appreciate your feedback on that. And um, how do we so kind of shifting gears a little bit into the aim part of it. So can you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah, absolutely. So so Faith Logical Fun and Memorable was born out of how do you interact with people? But right. the reality is that you have to look at your current systems to figure out where that fits. Right. So this kind of goes back to your recession question a little bit. The first thing that AIM does with an organization is it analyzes the current system. How do you onboard your employees? Mm -hmm. Are they do they feel equipped? So your very first question to me that I feel like I could have answered a whole lot better had I given it a little more thought is that um, when you when you first look at a situation, you have to analyze what's going well, what's going not so well and how can we get better? So it's looking at your your team. It's saying, um, you know, what what onboarding do you do? People don't want to suck at their jobs, but are you equipping them to be great? No. And so the analysis is the opportunity to think through what are we doing well? What are we doing not so well? And how can we fix it? Yeah. One organization that I work with that makes this really easy is a company called Elation. So Elation is a well-being assessment company that they give the assessments to all the employees, right? So let's pretend that we have an organization of 25 people or 250 people, it doesn't matter. 
and we give everybody this assessment. The assessment then gives you a personal well-being report. And it tells me as a human, am I getting enough sleep? Am I eating in good intervals? Am I exercising like I should? And do I feel satisfied at my job? And do I have knowledge acquisition, right? It's all of the things. So right. now I, Christy, know how I am. But it also gives you a team report. And I can look at my 18 to 25-year-olds and I can see what their stressors are. And I can look at my African-American group and I can see what their stressors are. And I can look at my males versus females and see their stressors. I can also see their buffers. The buffers are the bright light, the thing that's going well. So if everybody feels like they are super happy with their compensation, Mm -hmm. it's not a money issue. It's a, um, they don't feel like they're asked questions about decisions in the organization. So the analysis leads to the improvement. Now that I know these things, what the heck do I do about it? Right. <laughs> and that's where we, that's where we bring in the safe, logical, fun, and memorable. That's how we improve on your current system. I see. So, okay, this is what you were doing. Now we're going to improve on them. What have you done well? What have you done not so well? But the hardest part is the the move, right? Is right. that we're going to do it differently now. And so I often say that the knowing doing gap is a chasm, right? So I might know that I'm supposed to do something, but to actually get me to change my behaviors and do it is scary. And I just told you that it takes 18 times of doing it to get it right. Right. So businesses will say, well, I tried doing X and it didn't work. Well, you tried it once on a Friday, right before a holiday when everybody was already leaving. And like, why would you do it then? So the move is the part that takes time, six Mm -hmm. months, right? In the next six months, what are we going to do differently as an organization so that we get different results? So that's the process of analyze, improve, move. What questions does that bring up? No, that that's that's a great that's a great uh, uh, feedback into how that ties into the safe, logical, fun, memorable piece. Like so, we so we're 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 analyzing where we're at now. Really, it's just taking an assessment of where we're at, analyzing that, then making a plan to improve, and then and then you know taking all that information and putting it into an action plan, and then actually making the moves, which is sounds like the, that's the hardest part. And how do you manage in that last part? of the move, um, resistance is, I know there's going to be natural resistance to that change that might be existing in, in the culture. For sure. Um, and you have to have willing parties, but you also mm. have to drip, 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 right? So I can't right. come in and, and say, here's what you need to do to move. I'll see you in six months. Best of luck. It's got to be, yeah. okay, I'm going to check in in three weeks and you're going to try this thing for those three weeks. And then we're going to see whether or not those, that thing is making a difference. And then we'll decide what new thing we need to do. We tend to try to eat an elephant um, ineffectively and all at once. And there's really only one way to eat an elephant and that's one bite at a time. However, I will add a caveat to that because over the years, so our, our, we, I, we have twins, they're 21. For all 21 of Jackson's years, we have said to him, son, how do you eat an elephant? And he says, one bite at a time. But I've discovered that it's actually a whole lot easier to eat an elephant with friends, Mm. right? If you're trying to eat the elephant alone, you are not going to ever get to the whole thing before it rots. So what if you had others doing it with you? So if I'm working with leaders, it's the leadership team that we're talking to about what do we need to do to eat this elephant. And then we're involving all the rest of the crew and we're saying, all right, are we going to start at the front of the back? 
how's this going to go? We need to chew on this for a little while, digest, move on. I could get really gross. I was a science teacher. I won't. <laughs> but the idea is that you can't, you cannot eat that entire elephant all. That's so, that's so good. I'm so glad you said that because I was waiting for that moment where the idea of community came into this conversation. Uh, every interview I've had about fear, about anxiety, about rising above it involves bringing in a community, bringing in a team. And, 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 and so that's the important part. I'm so glad we got there because uh, it, it's keeping, it's keeping that trend going. So we're good. <laughs> All right. Look yeah. at that. <laughs> but no, it's a, it's a great way of putting it. Like, yeah, eating, eating an elephant with friends is, uh, a, you know, one bite at a time, you're going to accomplish a lot more on that, on that front. So this is such a, it's such a good framework and I'm so glad you, you brought it here. And I know it's making such a dramatic difference in, you know, the lives of people and in organizations. Um, and so thank you for sharing that with us here. And I know you're involved in a lot of other, you know, just kind of other things as well. And, and I mean, it's just, you know, you're, I, I mean, you mentioned in, in your bio that you're also, you and your husband are marriage mentors. Uh, so how, we what, are. uh, you, you help people get married, uh, married or how, how does that work? <laughs> so, right. So our church, um, built a chapel for the sole purpose of outreach. But if you get married in our mm-hmm. chapel, you don't have to be affiliated with the church at all. However, you do have to go through four premarital mentoring sessions, and those mentoring sessions are not done by the pastor. They're done by different couples in the church who've been married somewhere between three and 53 years. And our job is to talk to you about four things. We talk to you about your your story, right? So your family, your faith, your finances, your friends, and your foundation. Then we talk about your design, and that's important because your experiences are what make you who you are. And and your stressors and your nature. We do a personality test. Then we talk about communication and conflict resolution, right? It's not about not fighting. It's about taking that fight that right now is an 11 on a scale of one to 10 and bringing it down to a three and not three days, but 30 minutes. Yeah. And then the last one we do talk about, but we also talk about intimacy and relationships and the difference between romance and um, affection because there is not a guidebook to marriage, Mm -hmm. but there are tools that you can have in your tool belt to make it more successful. So we've done 66 couples in the last five years. We love it. We get better at our marriage every single time we meet with them and they have totally changed our lives. So we, they've had babies, they've had, you know, built houses and moved and done all kinds of things. And we get to kind of still be a part of it. That's so cool. And it must be so fulfilling to see that, you know, happen with other couples too, not to mention as you said, the benefit to your own marriage. I mean, and I'm sure that oh my gosh. that translates. Yeah, it's got to be incredible. Yeah, well, we we have to talk about relationships all the time. So we've got to get good yeah. at it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it, I mean, those kinds of things too. I mean, when you're teaching, when you're when you're educating in the space that you are, you're probably learning a lot and just applying your, to your to your well-being, to your 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 benefits. So that's incredible. And um and uh, also as, a, as an author, you, you are coaching people to write books and things like that too. So um, that's, a, that's, a, that's something I can relate to. I wrote a book as well. And, and so that's not an easy process. So no, how, uh, how are you helping people to do that? 
So I work for a company um, called Two Penny Publishing. It's a partnership publishing mm -hmm. company, and that's who published my book. So if you go through Two Penny, which I highly recommend, you are assigned an author coach. And that author coach meets with you throughout your book process and reads your first couple chapters and coaches you on how do you make it great. So the, yeah. my coach said to me as he read my book the first time, um, he said, Christy, I need less Christy Kent and more Super McMullen. I'm like, I, I don't understand what that means. And he said, well, <laughs> he said, this reads like a textbook, which I had written a dissertation. So that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. He said, but your personality is your superpower and you didn't use it. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm supposed to read something people want to read. Nobody wants to read a dissertation. So I had to learn how to, to channel who I was, right? That, that superpower of my personality. And yeah. that's what I do with my authors is I talk to them about who are you? It goes back to the authentic self. Who are you and who are you trying to reach with this book? And how do you make sure that they are getting out of it what you want them to get out of? of the book. And um, that has been a game changer for me. I now look at it that way. So every book has a hero and a guide. And if you make yourself the hero as the author, you've lost your audience. They're mm -hmm. the hero. You're just the guide. And so you're trying to get the reader to gain all the information. It's just like the person doing the talking is the person doing the learning. Yeah, that's so that's so good. And, and I'm, I love how you tied it back to being authentic. Because that's, uh, uh, I mean, it's so important that the, if your personality is your superpower, if you're being authentic, that's the way you're going to make your work fun. So Absolutely. very cool because I, I, I know that there's a lot, a lot of need out there for helping authors get their message out there and get it out there in their own story. So awesome. Yep. And, and so you are a keynote speaker. You're an author. You are a coach. You're doing a lot of great things in the world. Where can people find you? And uh, and what's, what's next for Dr. Christy McMullen? Okay. So the best place to find me is my website, which is aimwithus.com. Uh, because that will tie you to all my social media. You can look up Analyze, Improve, Move on Instagram. But the space that I'm spending the most time in right now is LinkedIn because I'm really targeting leaders and that should be the space that they're in. So um, if you just look up Dr. Christy McMullen, then you will find me and hopefully find some anecdotal evidence that I know what I'm talking about periodically. <laughs> um, I do try to post every day a little something, some kind of negative wisdom because I... So fun fact, this is random, but an aside, I have been doing a motivational email for the women at my job for the last seven years. Every day they get some kind of little Christyism that is just trying to get them to, to be their best self. And that has, is translating into LinkedIn now because I'm like, well, I'm doing it. Why wouldn't I share it? Right? Like this is something because I don't want to leave anybody, um, I always want to leave people better than I found them, not because they were bad when I found them, but because that's the best I can do for them to make them better. So yeah. that's that's where you find me is LinkedIn, Dr. Christy McMullen and aimwithus.com. Those are the two best places to find all my stuff. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing what you're doing on LinkedIn to, to empower people and, and, and motivate. It's uh, it's so important. And um, and thank you for being here and sharing all that story and sharing your story authentically and sharing your frameworks and sharing all of that wisdom. Uh, I know that if if you're a leader and you're listening to this and or you're or you're somebody within an organization that's experiencing fear, you're going to get a lot from uh, Dr. Christie's experience. And uh, and if you'd like to reach out to her, please do and and use her use her knowledge for, for your good. 
Um, thank you, Dr. Christy McMullen, for joining me here today. And um, thank you all for, uh, for joining us. Thank you, Adam. You bet. Thank you. Talk to you soon. It was super fun. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Flow Over Fear podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. I will be so grateful if you do. And I'll look forward to bringing you more value in our next episode. I'll see you then.